Turn your Bibles to Luke 22 as we continue our series in Luke's Gospel and the last week of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's ministry on earth in these last several chapters of Luke. Jesus has now been betrayed. He has been arrested, and we pick up with that arrest in the garden in verse 54 of Luke 22. Let's stand out of reverence for God and for His Word. Luke 22, beginning in verse 54. Then they seized him, that is Jesus, and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light, looked closely at him and said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval, about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out, and he wept bitterly. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that as we reflect this morning on the look of the Lamb, and Christ gaze upon us, that you would melt our hearts and cause our love for you to grow and to mature and to deepen, and that our response to your word and to this table would have a profound, transforming influence upon our hearts and our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Judas has just betrayed the King of Glory with a kiss. Perhaps that kiss was the greatest act of betrayal the world has ever known. But if that was the greatest act of betrayal by Judas, possibly the greatest denial was by Peter. Peter was in the inner circle of the disciples. He had actually become the spokesman of the disciples. He was the first to declare, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He had even boasted earlier in verse 33, Lord, others may deny you, but I will never deny you. Matthew elaborates on that boast and says, even if I must die, I will not deny you. One writer said this is the Titanic of testimonies, and that pride-filled boat has now just set, sunk to the depth of the sea of denial. Jesus has predicted it would happen. It wasn't some iceberg of a large gathering, but just the teenage girl that caused him to deny the Savior here. Jesus had predicted it, and now it's set in motion. We see this sense of denial. We sense it coming in those haunting words. And Peter was following at a distance. His actions remind us that the disciple cannot follow Christ from a distance, for distance often leads to even greater denial. Jesus, I will follow you. 
I'll do anything you say. Go anywhere you want me to go. I just don't want to have to follow you too close. That's a bit uncomfortable. You know, distance from Jesus is often already a sign of a more subtle denial. But still following from a distance, Peter sits down by a fire to warm himself in the chill of the night. And there, a teenage servant girl recognizes him in the night, the fire. She says, surely he's one of them. And he says, woman, you hear the abruptness, the rudeness, I am not. And then someone else said, yeah, he, he was with him. Man, I, I'm not. And then the third recognized him. Possibly his accent gave him away. He, he too's from Galilee. And he denied it vehemently. Man, I am not. I do not know him. Matthew and Mark tell us he even supported that denial with a curse upon himself. Certainly this man was with him. Man, I don't know what you're talking about. The word deny in verse 59 is in a tense of the verb that it settled. It was deliberate. It was decisive. He was adamant. He was emphatic. I do not know him. I swear I do not know him. The fear of man, or should I say the fear of a teenage girl, caused Peter the rock just to crumble and to melt. Phil Riken writes of us today, unless we speak up for what we believe, then, our, then we ourselves become the deniers of Christ. I deny Christ when I talk with my friends about being involved in church, but not what it means about knowing Jesus. I deny Christ when there is so little that is distinctive about the way I live that people at work or school don't know that I'm a Christian. I deny Christ when I am so afraid about what people think that I shrink back from telling the truth about what the Bible says about controversial issues like abortion or homosexuality or the unique claims of Christ that He is the only Savior of the world. I deny Christ when I say something a Christian shouldn't say or do something a Christian shouldn't do because I want to have fun and be popular and not be rejected. But if I cannot speak up and say something for Jesus, then what kind of disciple am I anyway? This Is Us is a popular television show on NBC. And in a sense, Luke 22 is Peter is us. We're often just like him, crumbling at, at the thought of someone calling us to public profession of Jesus calling upon us to state what the Bible says clearly. And we find ourselves cowering like Peter at times, following at a distance, even de denying him. Peter is us. It reminds us that discipleship cannot take place following Jesus at a distance. It reminds us that distance often leads to greater denial. It reminds us that true discipleship is not evidenced in what I say about Jesus and my claims of him in private. But what I'm willing to say about him in public, it reminds us of what J.C. Rowell once said, the best and highest saint is a poor, weak creature, even at his best times. Here's Peter, the rock, the spokesman of the disciples, deliberately denying Jesus three times, and then right on cue, as Jesus prophesied, the rooster crows. The haunting sound of the rooster. Can you hear it? 
That, that haunting sound of the rooster must have pierced Peter's ears. But what took place next must have pierced his heart. As he denied Jesus for the third time and the rooster crows through the night light of the fire, Jesus looks from the courtyard across and their eyes meet. Jesus looks at Peter. And Peter's heart was broken. It melted. What do you suppose the look revealed? Certainly it revealed some disappointment. The hurt and pain that Jesus had not only been betrayed, now he's been denied and all the disciples had left. It revealed the prophecy that Jesus said about Peter what did indeed come true despite his objections. It revealed the reality of the proverb, pride goes before destruction and destruction before a haughty spirit. But what else might it have revealed? Beyond all these things, I think that the Lord's look reveals that Jesus is completely aware of and compassionately aware of our feebleness, our frailty, and our failures. Jesus knew completely what Peter had done. He had prophesied that he would do this. And as their eyes met, it was as if Jesus' gaze was a gaze of love, a gaze of grace. Why do I say that? If you look at Luke's language and, and how he describes Jesus' arrest in verse 54, I think it's deliberate. Describing his arrest, he, he says, they seized him and led him away. When I read those words, I can't help but think of the language and the imagery and the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 53. What do we know about the Messiah, the, the suffering servant, the Lamb of God? Isaiah writes, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've denied him. We've betrayed him. All we like sheep have gone astray, everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter. When Jesus looked at Peter, he didn't say, I told you so. He didn't say, there you are, this failure. I'm so disappointed. I'm done. My mission is over. He didn't say any of these things. Instead, he continued down the Via Dolorosa. Via Dolorosa is the way of suffering. It's supposedly the route Jesus took in Jerusalem from his trial to the cross. In 1989, Sandy Patty wrote a song by that title, Via Dolorosa. And the third verse reads, Down the Via Dolorosa called the way of suffering, like a lamb came the Messiah, Christ the King. But he chose to walk that road out of love for you and me, down the Via Dolorosa, all the way to Calvary. What Peter experienced was the look of the lamb. The Lamb of God who was willing to lay down His life for Peter's denial, for our denial, for our sin, for our feebleness and frailty, for our weaknesses. He was willing to lay down His life and be led like a lamb to the slaughter. You see, Jesus, knowing full well Peter's feebleness and frailty, looked at him as if to say, Peter, don't forget I love you. I have prayed for you as we saw earlier in Luke, and I am willing to lay down my life for you you. And this Savior who knew Peter's failure completely and compassionately is also a Savior, a savior who knows yours and he knows mine. 
a Savior of compassion and pity and mercy and grace. I think Alexander McLaren was spot on when he said this. And we have not only to feel that the eye that looks upon us, cognizant of our denials, but that it is an eye that pities our infirmities and knowing us altogether loves us better than we know. Here's a Savior who knows our feebleness and frailty, that we are but children of dust, and yet He loves us and has compassion and mercy upon us. Here's a Savior who knows us better than we know ourselves, who knows the feebleness of our frailty, who knows the secret sins and misdeeds dark, and yet still loves us enough to lay His life down upon the cross. When the eyes met, when Jesus looked at Peter and Peter saw that gaze, we're told that his, his heart melted, that immediately he went out and he wept bitterly. What do we learn from this? When we begin to gaze upon that look of love, the look of the Lamb, that gaze of grace, what does it do for us? What's the intended purpose of Christ's gaze upon us, even in our sin. It is to remind us that Jesus' compassion, His kindness, His mercy, and His grace are intended to lead us to repentance, renewal, and restoration. Jesus doesn't look at us in our weakness and say, I'm done with you, that's it. But that look of His mercy and grace is intended to transform us. Jesus' piercing and transforming gaze had a profound impact upon Peter. He immediately, the text tells us, went out and he wept bitterly. He was overwhelmed with remorse. But here's the question. I think anytime we break down in, in, in tears and in sorrow, was this a godly sorrow or a worldly sorrow? You, you know the difference. We've talked about this before. Worldly sorrow is sorry I got caught. Sorry for the embarrassment it brought upon me. Sorry for the consequences of my sin. It's all about self. But godly sorrow is God-centered. It's a recognition that my sin and, and its guilt wasn't just something to make me feel bad about myself. It was an affront to the nature and character of the holy heart of our God. And so Paul, in writing on the difference between Godly sorrow and worldly sorrow wrote the Corinthians. As it is, I rejoice not because you are grieved, but because you are grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly sorrow produces death. Here's the difference. Worldly sorrow may weep bitterly, but it's sorry over the consequences of sin, the, the sense of shame and guilt that is brought upon me. It's all about me. It's self-focused, but godly sorrow is all about God. We've seen this evidence in King David's life. David was referred to as a man after God's own heart. You think, how in the world could that be? I know some of David's history. I know some of his story. David was referred to as a man after God's own heart, not because of the righteousness of his actions, but because of the genuineness of his repentance. Do you remember David in Psalm 51, after committing adultery with Bathsheba, 
having her husband murdered and living a lie, a cover-up for a year before the people of God. David, when Nathan points his finger at him and says, David, you're the man, crumbled in godly sorrow. And he cried out in Psalm 51, speaking and praying to God against you. You only have I sinned and done what is wicked and evil in your sight. That's godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is all about self and leads to death. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Perhaps the contrast will help us in seeing the two as you think about Judas and Peter. Both men were in close proximity to Jesus. Both men were in the inner circle. Both men deeply offended him. Both men went out and wept bitterly. But in the case of Judas, who was not regenerate, it was only worldly sorrow. For after his weeping, he didn't return to Christ. He took his own life. Worldly sorrow led to death literally for him. But for Peter, it was different. His sorrow eventually led him back into the arms of his Savior. Just as Jesus said, after you have denied me, you will return again. And indeed, he did. That godly sorrow led to repentance. Peter had deeply wounded and offended the heart of Jesus, and he was profoundly grieved, and that godly grief led him back into the arms of his Savior. He turned again. He repented. Question number 87 in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is a wonderful brief definition of what is godly sorrow. What is genuine repentance? Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercies of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin Turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after a new obedience. Let me ask you, does that describe the condition of your heart? Does it describe the condition of my heart? When, when I sin, when we sin, do we, out of a true sense of having grieved the heart of God, seek to turn from the sin that we so often love? God, help me hate that which I love to turn from it, to, to receive the mercies of God in Christ, to feel the, the washing of Christ's blood. And then having been forgiven, there's this new purpose of and passion for, a new obedience out of a love for Jesus, for all that He's done for us. Do we seek by the divine grace of the Holy Spirit to turn from that sin and to passionately live for our Savior? This is the mark of a Christian of one who's been born again by the Spirit of God. There is this godly sorrow that leads to life and reconciliation. And certainly Peter experienced that. The refreshment that comes of having the guilt re removed from us. Peter later exclaimed, and it's recorded in Acts chapter 3, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come. Sin always saps our joy. It saps our spiritual strength. It wears us out. David said in Psalm 32, when he didn't confess, it was as if the heat of summer had just sapped his energy and strength for the Lord. But when there's faith and trust in Christ and repentance, there's refreshing. 
And Peter was later restored. Jesus asked him in John's gospel, Peter, do you love me? He asked him three times. Possibly because Peter had denied Jesus three times. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you really love me? Yes, Lord. Then here's the restoration. Feed my sheep. And he did. God used Peter in the life of the church. He used Peter even in public where before he had denied Jesus before a teenage girl. After Pentecost, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit where he was empowered from God on high. We find Peter in Acts 2 standing before thousands of angry people declaring that Jesus is the Christ. The only way of salvation. There was refreshment. There was restoration and restoration to ministry as well. And God promises the same for us as his people. All of this from a look. One look of the lamb that dissolved Peter's heart into thankfulness and melted his eyes to tears. Tears of repentance. And that look is intended to do the same for us. This table is intended to do the same for us. To cause us to gaze into the face of our Savior who sees us and knows us better than we know ourselves. Who knows our feebleness, our frailty, our sin, and our rebellion. And yet says, I was willing to lay down my life as a sacrifice and atonement for your sin. I'm willing through that faith and trust in me not only to remove your sin, but now clothe you with my righteousness and to restore you and to use you in the lives of others for my glory. That look is intended to lead us to repentance. Paul said to the church in Rome, Romans chapter 2, verse 4, these words are, Do you presume... Even as we gather around this table, do you presume on the riches and kindness and forbearance and patience of God, knowing that God's kindness, that look of the Lamb, this table, is intended to lead us to repentance? Have you beheld the gaze of Christ, the look of His love? Or because of your sin, do you feel the weight? You've hung on to it and you feel like I'm not worthy even to crawl back to him because of what I've done. Are you seeking somehow to merit his mercy? Jesus says it cannot be merited. It cannot be earned. Simply look to me in faith. And as you do, look to him and see the face of a Savior who's gazing upon you in mercy and grace and in love, leading you to repentance the greater trust and faith in Him. This table is intended to remind us of the Savior's look, to remind us that He went down the Via Dolorosa, where He suffered on the cross for our salvation. It's to remind us we have a Savior who knows us better than we know ourselves, but who loves us more than we could ever hope, dream, or imagine. And so as you partake this morning, examine your hearts. What sin am I cherishing? Am I coddling in my heart? God, grant me grace to repent. In light of the cross, in light of the look of the Lamb. And may I know that restoration, that reconciliation, that refreshment, having met you at your table this day. Let's pray together. Father, Peter is us. We have often denied our Savior. 
followed at a distance, been fearful of what others would think if we spoke publicly about Him. You know our sin and our misdeeds dark. And yet, O oh Christ, You've demonstrated Your love for us. May we this day look through the lens of Scripture, through the glasses of this table, and see a Lamb who is worthy. But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Oh, here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. Meet us at this table, we pray this day. In Jesus' name, amen.